0: Tonight on the readout,
1: uh, Cash, I, I know you're probably going to be head of the CIA, but do you believe that you can deliver the goods on this in a pretty short in a pretty short order, the first couple of months, so we can get rolling on prosecutions?
2: Yes. One thing we learned in the Trump administration the first go round is we got to put in all America patriots top to bottom, and we got them for law enforcement, we got them for intel collection, we got them for op- offensive operations, we got them for DoD, CIA everywhere.
0: That's Kash Patel, who might run Donald Trump's CIA. And how about Stephen Miller at the DOJ or Chief of Staff Steve Bannon? Those are just some of the people Trump would likely dredge up from the MAGA swamp if he somehow gets a second presidency. Speaking of Trump, he was back in court today. And there's new reporting on the signals from prosecutors in Georgia that they expect Trump and or his co-defendants to get prison time. Plus, an update on the major scandal involving Florida's Republican Party chair and his wife, which is shining a light on the efforts by Moms for Liberty to take over school systems and control what your children can read. And we begin tonight with a clear and present danger that cannot be repeated enough. If Donald Trump gets a second presidency, the American Democratic experience will cease to exist as we know it. We already know what he plans to do. First, he wants to round up in prison and deport 11 million migrants. Then he wants to gut the EPA, roll back environmental regulations and, of course, a promise to drill, drill, drill to the earth literally dies. Then we will see the the deployment of federal troops in major Democratic cities to shut down protests and round up unhoused people where they, alongside the rounded up migrants, will be forced into tent cities. While federal forces are busy doing that, Trump's Department of Justice will be indicting Joe Biden, his family, Democratic officials and members of the media. The people who beat police officers and smeared feces on the walls of the Capitol during the January 6th insurrection, meanwhile, will receive full pardons. Internationally, Trump will pull the U.S. out of NATO, abandon Ukraine and continue to endorse the annexation of Palestinian territories. Now, you might think this is hyperbole. Or that the institutional guardrails will hold. Or maybe, just maybe, some fellow Republicans, assuming any of them still have spines, will somehow restrain him. Do not hold your breath. Just look at what happened last night during the fourth Republican presidential debate. Of the four candidates, only former Governor Chris Christie dared say his name or criticize his dictatorial aspirations. And he's not wrong. His second administration will be a curated cabal of despotic enablers. We already know that John McEntee, his body man, will be central in calling in culling so-called infidels. And Russell Vought, who ran the Office of Management and Budget for Trump and is currently running a policy organization, which is laying the groundwork for a second Trump administration, recently explained why, telling The New York Times, what we're trying to do is identify the pockets of independence and seize them. This morning, Axios laid out what a second administration will look like. And it should terrify every single one of you. According to Axios, among those in contention for vice president are Senator J.D. Vance, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Melania Trump's favorite, Tucker Carlson. Then there are the cabinet officials. Let's start with Stephen Miller, a man who promoted white nationalist books and articles who just might be your next attorney general or in charge of immigration.
1: You need to mobilize the U.S. military, state, federal, and local law enforcement to then carry out large-scale deportations across the whole country. And then you would need to build very large staging facilities to carry out the removal. So it would be a an undertaking that yep. would be greater than any national infrastructure project that we've done to date, but that's what we have to do.
0: Then there's Kash Patel, a former Trump administration official who was once considered for CIA until people threatened to quit. Well, he could get a second crack at the job. It's probably because he agrees with Trump that former Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley should be punished for preventing Trump from launching a military attack after his 2020 loss.
2: Chairman Milley is trying to use the media to show that the mission serves his needs. And that is the main reason he needs to go and be court-martialed.
0: And there is Richard Grinnell, who as ambassador to Germany told Breitbart... That he absolutely wanted to empower other conservatives throughout Europe. He could be our next Secretary of State, and he might be the guy who and, and who might be the one who manages the White House. You ask? It could be Steve Bannon as Trump's ne- next Chief of Staff, and this kind of stuff is why.
1: It's either us or them. but one side's going to win and one side's going to lose. No compromise.
0: Axios is also telling us that Trump is considering J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon, a Democrat. To head the Treasury Department, because he loves billionaires. And his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, for Secretary of State. It is a nightmare-inducing poo-poo platter of enablers, sycophants, outright fascists, and nihilists. Joining me now is Anne Applebaum, staff writer for The Atlantic, and Denver Riggleman, who served as a Republican congressman and is now an independent. Thank you both for being here, Anne. I do want to start with you. We went through all of these choices, Stephen Miller for Attorney General, Kash Patel, CIA, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera one of the sort of conceits in this article by Axios is that any of these people would have to go through some sort of uh process in the United States Senate to be confirmed. I think that that is quite a conceit to have. If Donald Trump is reelected,
3: that sort of process process won't matter anymore. I mean, un- uh, tell me if I'm wrong. No, he could ha- he could make them acting secretaries of state or acting cabinet ministers. He would he might just skip the process altogether. Um and I should say, you know, it's very common in in other failing or, uh, you know, uh, democracies in trouble um, for the second term of the would-be autocratic party to be much different and much worse than the first. I mean, that's what happened in Viktor Orban's Hungary. It was Mm -hmm. after he lost an election and came back um, that he really created a one-party state, much in this way, appointing loyalists. Um, it's, It's really the second try after the experience of briefly being an officer, the experience mm-hmm. of failure, um, that they're much more likely to try again. So I think it's an it's it's an accurate analysis that it's, it's something that we should worry about. Well,
0: I think about Maduro, right, who's been there, what, now 13 years or however many years, they get worse as they go on because they learn from their previous experience, right? Netanyahu was one way the first time that he ran. He's now like, I think I'll just take over the Supreme Court and change it because I have a criminal indictment. You can go on and on. Poland had this, they only recently emerged from it. Italy has faced it. It's kind of everywhere. What do you make of the fact that Donald Trump, he fits into that same milieu of people who they had some experience now. They now know what they, quote unquote, did wrong. And now the idea is to stack the deck with people who are only loyal to him. And therefore, there is no process. There is no sort of um,
3: bureaucracy that slows him down. That's the idea. No, I mean, that's the definition of how you create a one-party state is, you know, what's the qualification for a government job? You know, is it that you understand water pollution and you know how to fix it? Right. Or are you somebody's cousin? You know, or are you somebody's friend? Um, and in states that are declining, where, where democracy is failing, and sometimes actually where the bureaucracy is failing and the and the economy is failing, this is the kind of political system that you have. Right.
0: And Denver, um, you know, you, you've you been part of investigating all that happened on January 6th. I mean, the idea is that what Donald... Donald... Donald Trump seems to have learned from the experience of January 6th and and not being able to complete the coup is that he had the wrong people is that the problem was that Mark Milley was not willing to deploy the military, so he'll just get someone who is. The problem wasn't the coup. And it seems to me that uh, Republicans, people in—I'm not even sure if you're a Republican anymore— what they've learned from it is that they need to join in more enthusiastically. Because I I, can't—I have to be honest. I can't think of a single soul in the United States Senate that would stand in his way if he decided that he is now an autocrat and that, for instance— we're not going to have the mechanisms, or we have another election, Maduro style. I'm not sure who stops him because I don't know who's left in the party who thinks that's a bad idea.
2: Yeah, I, I don't either because winning is their number one objective, right, Joy? I mean, that's what they want to do. So, looking at polling and cross tabs and fundraising, you're seeing that Trump is the guy, right? He's going to get them reelected. Which, which crazy about what you just showed with Cash Patel with Stephen Miller. And by the way Joy I think you just gave a bad name to poo poo platter right I, I love those. Um, I think the issue that we have right now is Cap- what is Cash Patel's main qualification. I mean really is that he like to pose in full leather. I mean that's pretty much what Cash Patel's qualification is he likes to take pictures wearing leather. Um, and I think when you have people like that you value loyalty over competence. You have a problem with our government. Now, loyalty, of course, is always something and, you know, presidential appointments and things like that, it comes into play. But you really have nepotism of idiots. And I think that's the thing that bothers me is that these people just aren't qualified. They're specifically attuned to Trump's needs and wants. A lot of that is authoritarian authoritarianism bent. The other thing, too, when you're looking at their comments, it should scare the hell out of people that they are absolutely just like January 6th, they're telegraphing their punch. We knew it was coming on January. We saw the open source intelligence. You know, I was warning about it on the floor of Congress starting, what, in August, Joy? So they're telegraphing their punch believe them what they say, believe believe people in what they say to you, because it's exactly what they're going to do. And I think that's why we need to fight. And if they want to come after people, and I love what Ann said also, if they want to come after individuals like us, or they want to try to make a loyalty component the first thing that they're trying to do, it is our job to rise up and fight back. And by the way, there's a lot of other intelligence analysts and counterterrorism analysts and former military people out here who are happy to fight for the United States Constitution.
0: Well, see, that becomes the question. And and, and Ann, I'll, I'll pose it to you, because then what happens is, that we then have to count on whatever institutions are left to not be full of people who are sympathetic. We do know that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers draw from the military, they draw from police. So then we have to say, well, what percentage of current military are willing to stop it? Who stands against it? It's, it's not clear how widespread the authoritarianism is in each of these institutions. And so we'd have to just trust that somebody stands up to it. When you look at our system— Um, The sort of openness of our system. Do you see guardrails left? I I fail to see very many when I just look at it. And I think that in general, the military is still strong and loyal to the Constitution. But there are some in it who are oath keepers.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, the experience of the last administration, I mean, I think the I think the leadership of the military is clearly still loyal to the Constitution and the leadership of most institutions. You know, the, the Um, you know, the other security services and so on are as well. Um, You know, the problem is that it often takes only a minority of people. Right. Um, I mean, I would say the majority of Americans don't believe in authoritarianism, don't want autocracy, believe in the Constitution. And certainly the vast majority of people who work for the federal government in, you know, in whatever capacity. Um, The problem is that it can often take very few people. Um, it's just a few people making the wrong decisions in a, in, at the wrong moment in, right. in a few places and who are really determined to make the change. Um, and others are usually not prepared and not organized. And, um, and you know, once someone has broken the Constitution, and I actually lived through this in Poland, I watched it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, once that's happened and it's taken place, then there isn't really even a legal way to push back. Because, right. you know, the the, the, the rule, rule of law has already... Um, has already been undermined, um, and and then people are a little bit at sea as to how to behave. As to how to behave,
0: and, and their other problem is human adaptability. You know, I've been to Cuba, and what you see is a lot of people who have adapted to autocracy rather than mm-hmm. actively fight it, because after all, who am I, how do I fight it, when it's the system, and the system is overwhelming, and a lot of people simply adapt to it, which is what scares me. There's also, Denver, the idea of auditioning. Um, far be it from me to play the, the foolishness that uh, aired on, what is it called, News Nation um, the other night, this supposed um, debate um, for second place or for, you know, to be Donald Trump's fan club, leader of his fan club. Let me just play one person, Vivek Ramaswamy, because this, this other thing that's happening is you're seeing people audition to be a part of the team. Here is his audition in which he completely lies about January 6th. Here he is.
2: Why am I the only person on this stage, at least, who can say that January 6th now does look like it was an inside job, that the government lied to us for 20 years about Saudi Arabia's involvement in 9-11, that the great replacement theory is not some grand right-wing conspiracy theory.
0: There was there was that uh, at one point, Ashley Babbitt's mother had to correct him or, or I'm sorry, not him. Sorry, I will not. Um, let me let me take that back. There was another part in which Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley tried to sort of out each other and sort of each be harder on the LGBTQ community, uh, community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You had a gentleman who was sentenced for January 6th activity who claimed at his sentencing hearing that the whole thing was a conspiracy that the CIA was behind it and then said Ashley Babbitt wasn't even dead and her mother in the hallway had to correct him and say she's dead <laughs> right so th- so there is sort of an auditioning what do you make of that 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 is what we're seeing here is that people are all auditioning to join Donald Trump's team
2: you know joy you know watching this you know i saw the data for January 6th. And, you know, I've looked at conspiracy theories for a long time and myths and those type of beliefs. I've looked at radicalization on the war on terror. Vivek Ramaswamy, you know, what he's saying is actually dangerous. I don't think he believes any of it. I don't think he has any moral compass, compass. But false flags, they're the bastion of the most ignorant conspiracy theorists. And Vivek, what well, if he believes it or doesn't, it doesn't really matter because what he's doing is going back to that radicalization cycle for people that are listening to it. And if the audition from Vivek is that he comes out and says these type of things, so he gets on Trump's good sides, the good side, this should chill the American public. Because when you talk about January 6th, it wasn't an inside job. It's it's proven, it's ridiculous to say that. He likes to he always likes to step into nine-eleven trutherism. And when you're talking about Great Replacement, you're talking about one of the most racist theories out there. You know, and it really is ironic. Looking at where Vivek Rav comes from, looking at his skin color, too, the fact that he would be mentioning the Great Replacement Theory means he's the smarmiest, one of the worst um, individuals that I've ever seen on the political stage, maybe besides Donald Trump. And, you know, I don't say that lightly. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy is dangerous is because he minds the ignorant and he minds the stupid and that's what he does and he's very effective at it because he's very good at translating ignorance to the masses and it's something he's good at
0: Uh, Unfortunately yes and unfortunately we're out of time Uh, Ann Applebaum, Denver Riggleman, thank you both very much. Thank you. And up next on the Readout, new reporting sheds light on prosecutors endgame in Fulton County confirming that they are aiming for prison sentences for Trump and his top fellow coup potters Readout continues after this and I'm not sure that putting him- Donald Trump was back in a New York City courtroom today in his $250 million civil fraud trial. It comes four days before he's scheduled to take the stand as the final witness for the defense. The judge in this case has already ruled that Trump and his co-defendants are liable for fraud. What is yet to be determined by the judge is what financial penalties Trump will have to face. And since it is a civil trial and not a criminal one, there is no threat of any jail time. That is not the case for Trump in his four criminal indictments. In the Georgia election interference case, prosecutors have signaled signaled that they are seeking prison sentences for Trump and several co-defendants, according to private emails between lawyers obtained by The Guardian. In one email between prosecutors and defense lawyers, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis said that the attorneys have a long road ahead, long after these folks are in jail, we will still be practicing law. Joining me now is The Guardian's Hugo Lowell, who broke that story, and Catherine Christian, former Manhattan district attorney and MSNBC legal analyst. I'm going to come right to you, uh, Hugo, on these emails. Um, Say more. What did they say? You know, this seems to be an open conversation about putting who in jail. So did they mention any specific names besides Trump?
4: So there wasn't specific names about who they wanted to put in jail, but I think it gives you an indication of the end game that prosecutors are envisioning in this case. You know, I think several elements of this case are starting to crystallize. You know, we're moving towards setting a trial date. We now, we have an idea of the kinds of people that prosecutors are happy to extend plea deals to. And that's the lens through which I see these emails, which is, you know, we're getting closer and closer to how these proceedings are going to unfold at trial. And the pressure is ramping up on these co-defendants who are thinking, you know, do I take a deal? Do I not take a deal? Am I going to become a cooperating witness? Because... At the end, if I'm convicted, maybe there's jail on the horizon.
0: And the people who cannot uh, try for a plea deal, of course, are Giuliani, Trump, uh, and his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. They don't have that option. Their option is win or lose.
4: Yeah, that was the reporting that we had um, a couple of weeks ago, which is they are looking at those three at least as people who uh, won't be offered plea deals, at least for now. You know, that could change if Mark yeah. Meadows comes back and says, you know, pick yeah, my phone. I got stuff. I, that yeah. could be a little different. But yeah. at, at present, you know, those three are off the table. But for the remaining co-defendants, there are quite a few of them. And it has always been the district attorney's strategy to try and flip as many of these as possible to have the best case going to trial.
0: Uh, and the, the idea of a timeline, Catherine, uh, that is also a bit fungible at this point. Donald Trump has filed an appeal, um, and this is in the federal election interference case. This is the Jack Smith case. He has appealed the judge's ruling rejecting his claim of presidential immunity in the federal election subversion case. He is uh, seeks a pause in the January 6th proceedings amid an appeal to toss the federal case. But what he wants to do is to pause everything, to basically put a, a, a stopper on everything and pause everything while this is litigated, which could mean— the start date when we think of that we think of right now as March for at least one of these cases to begin could get pushed back. How likely is that?
5: Well it's all in the hands of the DC Circuit Court of Appeals because they will be the ones, not the Trump defense team, they will be the ones to decide whether or not they will stay the proceedings, meaning no more uh proceedings can happen in the district court with judge chuckin. It's interesting cuz judge chuckin um about an hour ago uh set a briefing schedule for both sides to argue why there should be a stay or should not be a stay. And so the Trump team has to respond Sunday and the government has to respond on Tuesday. But it'll be, it will be it's this is in the hands of the DC Circuit Court of Appeals. It's troubling that they still haven't uh, come with a decision on the gag order remember that was argued right. uh, 2 weeks ago and but you know they know what the timetable is too and are they going to like put this case on hold or are they going to you know try to you know expeditiously make a decision
0: Well, let me ask you this, because it seems, I mean, I don't know what's in her mind, but it doesn't seem likely that the Florida case, the documents case, is going to go to trial anytime soon. She seems to be keeping that going very slowly. Um, You've got the the Jack Smith argument, which I'm sure their argument is going to be that the American people have a right to know whether the person they might elect to the White House is a felon before the election happens. Uh, And then you've got the Georgia case. Is it possible because Donald Trump's strategy is obviously delay, 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 try to push it back, become president, and then wipe all these cases away to the extent he can? Can this case, or his attempt to delay, can that stop the Georgia case?
5: No, and because the Georgia case is well, the the, the judge they had a hearing um, about this uh, uh, August date. The DA wants to happen, and I'm talking about August of 2024. So. Right. Let's say the, the classified documents case doesn't go to trial because it's delayed and the federal election interference. You still have the Georgia case. And the judge did not seem to buy the argument that it's election interference for that case to go to trial. Essentially, you're telling the other 14 defendants, and I don't believe 14 defendants will be left by next August, that too bad you're not running for president. You have to go to trial. But Donald right. Trump, your co-defendant, he gets to get a adjournment until 2025. 20, uh, So the judge wasn't buying that argument. But I think we can expect the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals to try to expeditiously decide this. They are aware that there's an election in November of 2024. They don't want to be the ones that were like, well, what's going on here? Why can't they make a decision? So the, the trial may not happen on March 4th, but it might happen on April 4th.
0: Right. Can this can he then appeal to the Supreme Court?
5: Yes, that's the other. <laughs> so he can appeal to the, what's called seek certiorari, which is basically, and the Supreme Court will either deny or grant. And again, they also are aware. Time. I mean, people assume because he appointed three members of the Supreme Court, they're part of the Donald Trump fan club. Um, they have lifetime appointments. They don't have to do anything, he says. And they, too, don't want to be, you know, they already have a lot of bad will against them. They don't want to be known as, oh, they've delayed this so he can get reelected. So, yes, if the D.C. Circuit Court denies his appeal, they can seek certiorari from the Supreme Court of the United States.
0: I mean, we assume (laughs) that's how they feel, Hugo. I mean, inside Team Trump, it does seem that their strategy is to just keep playing the appeals game and to try to run out the clock. Is that their thinking?
4: Yeah, 100 percent. You know, they have no other Strategy left to push back the DC case in particular. You know, like you said in the classified documents case, Judge uh, Cannon has shown repeatedly that she intends to push this out. You know, she intends to use Seiber the Classified Information mm-hmm. Procedures Act to to delay proceedings. But in the D.C. case, Judge Chutkin has been so adamant that she will stick to her March trial day or even bring it forward if Trump continues to make inflammatory comments that I think the defense lawyers in that case know they're up against a hard clock. And that is why they're trying to find any avenue they can to appeal. And so the motions to dismiss that was rejected, that was written actually in a way that would tee it up for appeal because the D.C. circuit could take months to rule on that i mean we have to set uh, a briefing schedule we have to have oral arguments and then there's a decision and then yes if the supreme court takes it up that'll be another months-long delay this is the only chance they have and so they're putting all their eggs in this basket
0: take notes children if you want to commit crimes run for president because apparently you can delay adjudication of said crimes forever uh Thank you, Hugo Lowell and Katherine Christians. Thank you both. Still ahead, a released Israeli hostage shares her thoughts on the war in an exclusive interview as President Biden faces growing calls to push for a permanent ceasefire. We'll be right back. As fighting rages on in the, southern Gaza, in the southern Gaza city of Khan Yunis, today, the Gaza Health Ministry says the death toll in the region has surpassed 17,000, while the UN is warning that civilians trying to flee the fighting have nowhere safe to go. Meanwhile, Israeli forces are now blowing up the entrances to Hamas tunnels, while also reportedly considering flooding them with seawater, even though some of the estimated 138 remaining hostages might be in those tunnels which once again raises the question, what exactly is Israel's endgame here? We are also hearing directly from one of the freed Israeli hostages, 73-year-old Irena Tati, who earlier today spoke with NBC's Richard Engel.
2: And to the other question, what's it like for you to come back here after all that you've been through? <laughs>
4: Они роцаше, царих, на псих мильхама, акшав они Маргеша л, руэши... Маши... они роеши, акшав и авшар для гурпу, акша и маше, а харках, они ее не дают.
0: And back here in the U.S., pressure is growing on the White House to call for a ceasefire. Today, more than 500 staffers from over 400—from over 140 Jewish organizations across the country signed on to an open letter to President Biden calling for a permanent ceasefire and the return of all hostages, writing in part, Many of us have devoted our life's work to building thriving Jewish communities. We know there is no military solution to this crisis. We know that Israelis and Palestinians are here to stay. Neither Jewish safety nor Palestinian liberation can be achieved if they are pitted against one another. Joining me now is Michelle Goldberg columnist for The New York Times, and an MSNBC political analyst. Michelle, it's always good to see you. I want, I want to let you comment you. on that sweet um, elderly woman who is saying, how do I live here now? You know, the, 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 the state of siege is so thorough and so co- and so overwhelming. The amount of death across that border, she lives in southern Israel right near Gaza, has made her feel that she doesn't even know how things
6: can go forward. She wants the war to end. Your comments. Well, I would say two, I mean, two things. One of the reasons I think people are saying they can't live there now is that a lot of these people have been, you know, they've just lost a huge number of their population and the entire area has been turned into a war zone. One of the things that is so devastating about the Hamas attacks and the war, I think, for left of center, for many left of center Jews is that it was really the heart of the peace movement that Hamas attacked? You know, the Kibbutzim, the, the, the kibbutzim in the south are the sort of heartland of what remains of socialist labor Zionism. Yeah. You know, people were very much opposed to the current government, so you had those were the communities that were attacked. And the people who are responding are very much the opposite of that and have shown very little um, care or concern in many cases for not just for the futures of these Kibbutzim, but also for the remaining hostages
0: and i mean it is it is a, a a strange dialectic right i mean you do have so many liberal jewish groups here in the united states who are kind of part of the cornerstone of the peace movement here and as you said at the same time there is this agony over their counterparts uh in southern israel who really were the main people who were attacked and so they're in this sort of dual mind, right, that that, that the, the violence and the amount of death we're seeing in Gaza is heartbreaking for them as well. But as you said, there is also a desire to see their communities thrive or at least their their sister communities thrive in Israel as well.
6: Well, I think that's what's so difficult. I mean, you obviously have some Jewish groups that are just wholly committed to a ceasefire, but you have other groups like J Street, for example, that's very much on the fence that may has you know put out a statement saying they may soon withdraw their support for the war. if They don't see more care taken for civilians in southern Gaza, which doesn't look like that's happening right now. But the reason that this is so agonizing is because it's not clear if, you know, if even if you could get the Netanyahu government to stop the war, which is, um, you know, which which may be fantastical, it still isn't clear what happens to the, is the, the displaced people in Israel who have had to leave communities that have either been decimated because of Hamas attacks, but also are subject to continuous rocket um, barrages. And so it's, I think it's really painful for a lot of liberal Jews who think that the amount of Palestinian death has become intolerable, but who also don't know what the future of Israel looks like with Hamas next door.
0: You wrote a a piece about what's happening on the campuses uh, in the United States. We just saw this hearing. um, Elise Stefanik questioned um, the presidents of Harvard University, University of Pennsylvania, that's just lost a big donation because of the response of that president to the anti-Semitism they've seen on campuses. What do you make of the state of of sort of speech on this issue? Because there's a lot of passion on these campuses on both sides of it. Um, What do you make of the way that the university presidents are handling it and how they handled that hearing?
6: Well, I think I don't think anybody thinks that they handled that hearing well, even though I think there's been a huge amount of distortion about what they actually not what they said, but sort of the the context. And I know that for some people, it's going to be hard to hear that there could be a context that makes what they said OK. But if you watch the entire hearing, as I did, you heard Elise Stefanik over and over again define pretty common Palestinian slogans like from the river to the sea or intifada as as calling for the genocide of the jews and what the and so she was clearly trying to say that these that these university presidents should take disciplinary action against students who say these these very who, who use this very common rhetoric And when it got, and so, and they kept pushing back on that. And so when this questioning began, is it okay to call for Jewish genocide? It was clear, I think, if you had watched the previous part of the hearing, that that's what she meant. Is it okay under your rules for somebody to chant from the river to the sea? And the presidents gave these sort of legalistic answers because on the one hand, they don't want, because they actually don't want to get into an argument about the meaning of genocide, the semantics right. of genocide. At the same time, to say that they're going to start expelling people for chanting these slogans that have very disputed definitions would put them crosswise with the First Amendment. And so yeah. now there's been this tremendous backlash that's going to end up, um, I think, creating more censorship and repression.
0: Yeah, it is a it is a complex and. Uh horrific situation that doesn't seem to be getting much better. Uh, But I always appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, my friend, Michelle Goldberg. Thank you very, very much. much. Thank you. And coming up, the growing scandal surrounding Florida's Republican Party chair, Christian Ziegler, sheds new light on right-wing efforts to pack local school boards with conservative ideologies. More next. Stin Ziegler, the Florida Republican chairman, is facing mounting pressure to resign from his position amid rape allegations. His wife, Bridget Ziegler, is also facing pressure to resign from her position on the Sarasota County School Board. Her fellow board member, Karen Rose, says Ziegler must step down. Bridget Ziegler has already resigned from a different position as vice president of school boards for the Leadership Institute, an organization that provides training for conservative activists. Bridget Ziegler has not been accused of any crime, but she is engulfed in the scandal nonetheless. Her husband, Christian, is accused of raping a yet unnamed woman, which he denies. According to a search warrant affidavit first obtained by the Florida Center for Government Accountability, the Zieglers admitted to police they engaged in a threesome with his accuser more than a year ago. Another consensual sexual encounter with the Ziegler's and the woman was set in October. But the woman told police that Christian raped her when she refused to have sex without Bridget present. So why the ire against Bridget if she is not even named in the police complaint? Well, the scandal has many layers of messy and isn't a good look for Florida Republicans. But also... Bridget is essentially an anti-gay crusader who has now admitted to having sex at least once with another woman. In fact, here she is in 2022, standing behind Ron DeSantis when he signed the don't say gay bill into law. Hypocritical much? Yes. Ziegler is a co-founder of Moms for Liberty, the very group who slings groomer accusations at gay people and is obsessed with banning books about MLK and thinks a kid's book about hugging seahorses is too risque. The group's mission is clear, to take over school boards and steer local politics to the far right. Ziegler has held the seat on the Sarasota County School Board since 2014. Earlier this year, she introduced a last-minute agenda item to hire an educational consulting firm called Vermillion. But the board would eventually reject her proposal. About a week later, a last-minute item about hiring Vermilion showed up on a different school board agenda. This time, it was the Penridge School Board in Pennsylvania. Huh. Coincidence? Hardly. Because Vermilion is associated with Hillsdale College, a Christian school that is chummy with folks like Trump and DeSantis, and which is disseminating something called the 1776 Curriculum its response to the heralded 1619 Project. The 1776 Project has been slammed by critics as littered with right-wing Christian ideology and historical inaccuracies. When Vermilion failed to secure a contract for its kooky curriculum in Florida, it moved on to Pennsylvania. Unlike Sarasota, the Penridge School District, whose majority hailed for Moms for Liberty, hired Vermilion owner Jordan Adams. It didn't go well. Per the Southern Poverty Law Center, from the start, there were red flags about the Vermilion education proposal and contract, which called for a consulting fee of one hundred twenty five dollars per hour, plus travel expenses. Adams's proposal titled Education Restored began with a letter to the school board calling on its members to remain part of the right wing movement against public education. Long story short, it turned into a huge mess. A Penrose school board member told Popular Information that Adams was amateurish and horrible. Penridge would eventually terminate its contract, but only after an election this fall toppled the Moms for Liberty members, and Adams had already been paid $35,000 for his shoddy work. The Moms for Liberty co-founders are now scrambling to distance themselves from Bridget Ziegler and amid her and her husband's scandal, but the damage is done. And we are seeing exactly how this group plans to infiltrate American schools with folks like Jordan Adams, who, in a leaked audio, made his war on education abundantly clear. And we'll play that audio for you next. We have one chance at this, right? It
4: took uh, almost a 100 years for us to start playing the game, and they have a 100-year head start um, they, uh, and, and if we don't make the most of this chance, we're not going to get another one. I mean, it, it, it very much is a, within education, it's a, it's a do or die kind of moment.
0: That was leaked audio of Jordan Adams, president of Vermilion Education Consulting Company, addressing a Moms for Liberty summit in Philadelphia. The audio was posted by Bucks County Beacon Adams, Be- Bucks County Beacon. Adams, an education consultant with no education degrees and a graduate of Hillsdale College, also described his consulting work as the fox in the henhouse. Joining me now is Judd Legum, author of Popular Information and <clears throat> a guy who has exten- reported extensively on Vermilion. Tell me about Jordan Adams in Vermilion.
1: Well, this is someone who really appeared kind of out of nowhere. He only started his company this March, but he immediately started attracting the attention of school boards, really through this connection to Hillsdale. And it relates back to what you were talking about uh, in your previous segment, where the first person to to try to bring Jordan Adams in Mm -hmm. and have him reshape the curriculum in a school district was Bridget Zegler Mm -hmm. down in Florida. And she brought him in, and obviously she represents a very conservative district. Mm -hmm. She usually gets what she wants on that school board. But he was so unqualified, Mm -hmm. and there was such little information about what he would actually do that the school board had kind of a revolt and said— We're not going to do this. We're not signing this contract. It doesn't make any sense. We don't even understand what the purpose of this person is. Yeah, Uh, But he was able to be uh, successfully retained uh, in a district in Pennsylvania, Penridge, uh, and was able to get started there and, and be, a lot paid, of money. paid $125 an hour uh, with no specific uh, deliverables and you know, started making his recommendations. How
0: much of this is ideology and how much of it is a straight-up financial grift?
1: I think it's a marriage of the two things, yeah. to be honest <laughs> with you, because obviously there's this broader movement really around the Hillsdale 1776 curriculum, which was inspired by Trump. Right. There was this the New York Times came out with the 1619 project. Trump and the and the the MAGA folks were very upset about that. They created in response. Trump had the 1776 commission. Yeah. Hillsdale decided to make this into an entire curriculum that really presents the right as the um, the heroes. Trying to defeat the evil progressives, kind of throughout history, throughout history, throughout yeah. history, and George Adams worked, went to Hillsdale,
0: mm-hmm.
1: worked at Hillsdale, helping to promote this curriculum, and then spun up what he calls vermilion, which is bright red, yeah. <laughs> a bright red color, uh, to essentially make money to to graft the Hillsdale curriculum onto
0: public schools. Let's talk about Hillsdale for a moment, because people have probably not heard of it. It's not like a top college that people have heard of, but it seems to be a factory for evangelical, white evangelical ideology. Yeah, it is, it's a very powerful institution. Uh, they
1: attract a lot of very conservative uh, students, and they're educating those students, but more than that, they're really creating ideological warriors who, after going to Hillsdale, will then go out into the community. And that's exactly what Jordan Adams did. You know, he was going out. He was teaching in various uh, schools in Texas while getting some other other, uh, degrees and then came back worked on this uh, worked on this curriculum and then there's an aggressive effort by the college itself yeah. to push the, the materials that they are creating uh, beyond the campus. Yeah. Uh, and and into the broader uh, country.
0: I mean, I think the bigger picture is that education is a multibillion dollar business. You know, organizations like the College Board sell you all those tests. McMillan and company, the companies that make the tests, et cetera. Uh, I might have gotten that name wrong. I mean, th- th- this is a very lucrative business. Right. And if they can break in and replace what they see as liberal elites that are pushing diversity and inclusion and no black people contributed to history and replace that with the white Christian nationalism, they pre- white Christian nationalism they prefer, they both get ideologically to you know, groom children to be right-wingers, and they also make a buck.
1: Yeah, and that's actually Bridget Zegler. She was upset she didn't get Jordan Adams in her district, but yeah. when Jordan Adams signed that contract in Pennsylvania, he's, she said, this is great. He will now be able to go in and do a what he she called a woke audit <laughs> of the public school. So I, I, that's, I, that's really what she feels was going on, and that is what happened.
0: And is that woke audit, including being against, I don't know— threesomes?
1: That, that I don't know. That I have, would have to defer. that's nothing that
0: wrong with it if it's consenting <laughs> adults, but just saying it's a little bit hypocritical. Judd Legum, thank you. Please come back often with your great reporting. And that is tonight's readout.